I'm looking for just stuff that helps me get a little bit better, that helps me be a better person, that helps me be a better writer, that helps me be a better thinker, that helps me be a better husband, father, you know, all, all, all these things. That That's what I'm looking for. And I want people to understand that that's what philosophy is about. It's It's not this academic thing that's out of their reach. It's not this thing that you pursue on the side when you have a little bit of extra time. It is the ultimate self-help. It's the it's the important work that we should be doing. If you're not going to do it, who is? And if you're not going to do it now, when are you going to do it? I study the patterns of the Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Think Grow podcast where personal development meets real life. I'm your host Ruben Chavez and I explore a variety of topics with thought leaders, Uh, creators, entrepreneurs, authors, and all sorts of interesting people to bring you different perspectives you can use to enrich your mind and improve your life in whatever way you see fit. Today, I'm speaking with someone who I've admired for a really long time. His name is Ryan Holiday. He's one of my favorite writers and thinkers, as many of you know, Um, and I've admired his work for many years. I've shared it on Think Grow Prosper over those years from time to time. And today I get to speak with him, so really excited. For the few people who might not know who Ryan is, here's a little background. He's a writer and media strategist. He dropped out of college at 19 to apprentice under Robert Greene, who was the author of The 48 Laws of Power, another one of my favorite writers and books, actually. And so from there, he went on to become the director of marketing for American Apparel at 19 years old. Uh, You may have heard some of the controversial campaigns that he was a part of during this time. Anyway, today he has a creative agency called Brass Check. He advises uh, massive companies like Google and Complex, and he's also advised many amazing best-selling authors, including some more of my favorites like uh, Neil Strauss, Tony Robbins, and Tim Ferriss. Ryan is the author of seven books, uh, some of which include uh, The Obstacle is Away, Ego is the Enemy, uh, The Daily Stoic, and Perennial Seller. He actually has a new book out now called Conspiracy, so highly recommend checking that out. Uh, The Obstacles of the Way is probably my personal favorite of all of his books, and I'm definitely not alone in that. That book has kind of a cult following, actually, in the NFL world, um, among coaches, uh, just world-class athletes in general. Uh, TV personalities, political leaders, and a lot of other influential type people around the world. So with this conversation, I, I just wanted to really ask Ryan about his his mindsets and attitudes toward a variety of things like philosophy, reading, um, his early success, and a lot more. So I, I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. It's been one of my favorites so far. Um, One of my favorite parts of our conversation was when Ryan talked about how he writes about the things that he struggles with and the things that he works on every day. And I really related to him about that. And I think a lot of you will find that segment of our conversation really helpful. So sit back, relax, or just continue doing whatever it is that you're doing and listen to the insights of Ryan Holiday. Enjoy. Ryan, thank you for being here. How are you? 
I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I am excited to to talk with you. I, I want to talk about a variety of things here, but I want to give people a little bit of a taste for who you are and for those who are not familiar with your work, um, kind of just go over a little bit of a background. You you had a lot of success early on in your career, in your life, really. Um, dropped out of college in 19, and you were uh, the director of marketing for American Apparel. I, how did that come about and kind of how did that career trajectory, where did that take you and how did it start? Yeah, I mean, I think my career has mostly been a result of connections, right? I wasn't, I don't think I was necessarily born with any, but uh, I started in college just reaching out to people whose work I was a fan of. I segued that into an internship with a writer, and then he hired me as his assistant. Then I got uh, a similar job at a talent agency uh, during the so- my sophomore year of college. Then I met other authors. I worked for a movie producer. I was sort of willing to just take any chance for any job that might turn out that might turn into something. I ended up getting a job as a as a research assistant for an author named Robert Greene, who is my probably my favorite author uh, in history. He wrote a book called The Forty Eight Laws of Power, and I worked with him for a number of years. Uh, and then through Robert, I got connected to the folks at American Apparel, where I got hired as a consultant. Again, sort of an entry level position. Ended up as a director of marketing. So my strategy has always just been to to sort of say yes to things, to leap on opportunities, and and to then make the most of them once once I've gotten my foot in the door. Um, and and I, I feel like I've just repeated that over and over and over again, and e- each time moved on to something a little bit bigger and better than the last time. So the position at at, at American Apparel that was that mainly through connections that that's kind of how you jumped on that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I I, ha- I certainly had experience in marketing. I, I I had a background. I had people who vouched for me. It's it's not like oh hey this kid is my nephew you should hire him. I don't find that that ten- tends to work. But it's got to be a combination of all those things. And so at American Apparel, I I. I took a job there without a clear job title, without a clear set of responsibilities, just like, hey, I see something in you, come work for me. And I, I took, you know, it was a big leap. And within probably two years, I was, uh, you know, running the marketing department. And so, uh, again, it, for me, it's always been, you know, I, I just want a shot. And if you give me a shot, I, I'm pretty sure I can turn it into something. Is that kind of the overarching mindset you think that has contributed to a lot of a lot of your success just in general? Or, I mean, are you, obviously you're kind of just wired, I think, in a, in a particular way, as we all are. <laughs> or is there another mindset that's kind of a contributed to your overarching success? I mean, I mean, I'm sure it's a it's a number of things, but I think generally, yeah, my my life ended up going in the direction that it went because I took chances on things that I wasn't sure how they were going to go or where they were going to go or whether they might be huge mistakes or not. I mean, even dropping out of college to to sort of take this job in Hollywood and to work for this author. I mean, I I didn't know that I would end up here 10 plus years later. I thought there was a chance that I might. I also thought there was a chance that it might end with me having to go back to college with my tail between my legs. So I think part of it is also just not being afraid uh, willing to take risks and then willing to to turn a little opportunity into a big one. Very, it's like very few people are going to offer you your dream job, but they might offer you a shot at something that could turn into your dream job if you 
if you do the work. Saying yes, doing the work, being out there, throwing things up against the wall, seeing what sticks kind of. Totally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Robert Greene is, is one of my favorite authors as well. And 40 Laws of Power has been a really influential book early on in my life. Um, I, I want to know more about how that relationship came about. I think mentorship is super important. And I talk about that a lot on Think Grow Prosper. How did your relationship with Robert Greene materialize? Well, you know, I think people think that a mentorship is this like official, uh, you know, designation, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I say, I say that I was his apprentice and, and I think he would agree with that characterization. But when we met in 2007, uh, it's not as if he said, I am looking for an apprentice. Will you be my apprentice? <laughs> right. right. He was looking for a research assistant and he didn't have a good one. And he was working on a book and he needed some interviews transcribed. And, you know, I was like, look, I will do that. Like, I don't care what you pay me. You don't have to pay me. Like, I, I will do that. I would love the opportunity. Right. And he, he gave me one one hour interview to transcribe. And um, if, if I hadn't delivered it, that would have been the end of it. Right. If I delivered a, if I'd done a, a half ass job, that would have been the end of it. If he'd found somebody better than me, that would have been the end of it. You know, he gave me a shot. I transcribed one interview, then I transcribed another interview, then another one. Then he asked me to research some stories for him, and then I did a good job on that. And it was this process that evolved over time. It's it's not it's like any relationship, right? You're never like, hey, will you be, be- my best friend? Or you're never like, hey, will you be my, my girlfriend? Right? These are, right. it starts with a meeting or an introduction. And then you spend some time together and then you, you know, it, it evolves, it grows. And I think a mentorship is the same thing. And, 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 you know, it started, it evolved into something more because I would do the tasks that Robert would assign me. And then I would ask him questions. I'd be like, okay, like, why did they say this in the interview? Why did you ask this question? Um, what are you looking for? You know, how did you learn how to do this? And I, I felt like, although he was paying me, which was nice. It wasn't a ton of money by any means. I felt like that was extra. He was really paying me. Like I thought what I thought about is like, how much do, you know, successful rich people pay Robert for like an hour of his time, right? He's a a very in-demand consultant and strategic advisor. He's been on the board of a number of companies, right? What do those CEOs pay Robert for his time? You know, 10, $20,000 a month. And so for me at 19 or 20 years old, to be able to ask Robert a question and have him answer that question, well, that's worth, you know, many, many times what he's paying me per hour to transcribe these interviews. So I saw it as sort of a hell of a deal. And that's why I was willing to work so hard because every project I did gave him, you know, made it more likely that he'd answer my next question. Yeah, well, that's a really productive and effective framework to look at that relationship through like this is this is exciting because i i'm grateful for this opportunity i think it's a helpful mindset logistically how did how did you connect with robert originally i was working for one author uh who was friends with robert who connected me we all had lunch together and and that's the important of connections too is that they tend to compound right you have one relationship and then so uh, you're likely to meet the people they have relationships with, and it it extends and grows that way. So it's again, 
you know, I, I, a lot of people will be like, oh, networking is like meeting important people or whatever. Uh, no, meeting, it, it, oftentimes I've found that the best relationships I've had or the biggest breakthroughs I had have come through, a, a, a friend of mine is writing this book, his name is David Burkus, um, and, and uh, it's called Friend of a Friend. Uh, and he's like, that's really the future of networking. That's really the core element of networking and, 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 and meeting people that can change your life. It's not always the p- people you know. It's the people that the people you know know. Ah, got it. Wh- what was the book that, that you were helping Robert research when you first um, started working for him? I, I worked on a, a book he, he was writing with the, the rapper 50 Cent called The 50th Law. Uh, which went on to be a, a big bestseller, and then and then I, I worked uh, on his book Mastery as well. Very cool. I, I didn't realize until recently actually that, that you had helped him work on on the Fiftieth Law. That's also an awesome book. I I, I think it's so interesting how um, how Roberts works. I mean, he's a scholarly you know academic guy. He's a, his, like a historian, you know, and then he collaborates with someone like Fiftieth Cent. I, I love how that uh, these kind of unforeseen collaborations come about in his career. Well, you know, he talks about this in the intro to the 50th law. He says we tend to be sort of stuck in these ghettos and not ghettos in the like the economic sense, but we're stuck with people that are just like us. Yeah. And I think he he was saying that one of the reasons he wrote that book is that 50 Cent and he were so different, yet they shared a very similar mindset. And and he he thought that that was a a cool collaboration. And, you know, it was an eye opening experience for me. Like I, I researched a bunch of things that I wouldn't have normally researched. I learned a bunch of things that, you know, have influenced my own books. And so, you know, you always that's the other benefit of taking these leaps or these chances is that you get exposed to things that you wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to. Mm. What do you think was the most important thing that you took away from from that relationship? Well, I think the main thing I learned from Robert is just like an obsession and a love of the craft itself. Right. He. He is a he is a writer through and through. He takes this incredibly seriously. He lives almost sort of a monkish existence in relation to the the craft. And so I I came away taking the I took what he taught me very seriously, and I felt like it, it's something that needs to be honored and respected. Right? I don't see writing as this means to an end. I don't see it as a way to get speaking gigs. I don't see it as a way to be famous. Um, I don't see it as a way to get rich. I see it as a calling, like a, 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 a pursuit and that you have to respect it. Um, and so, so I, I, I learned that from him. I'm not sure I, I, I would have thought of writing the same way or taking it as seriously if I hadn't been sort of, um, educated by someone who kept such a discipline related to the craft. And then, um, you know, I think w- one of the things that Robert told me, and I, I wrote about this in my book, Perennial Seller, you know, he's saying, look, a book either has to be extremely entertaining, he said, or extremely practical. I mean, ideally, it's both, right? But I think this idea of of really thinking about what the book does for the reader is something that not enough not enough people do, and it's kind of embarrassing if you think about it, like uh, <laughs> that they just they just make what's fulfilling to them. Yeah, they don't actually think about who they're doing this for, and I I find that what problem are they solving? Exactly. Exactly. You've got to, you're, you're doing, yes, this is art, but it's also commerce, right? Um, if your book doesn't deliver value, why would a reader give you money for it? And why would they recommend it to other people? Right. Or you, 
you have a, a big social media following, you have an audience that you're uh, loyal to, why would you ever recommend one of my books? Why would you have me on my podcast if my book didn't deliver value, right? If it didn't do a good job. And so again, I think a lot of people think about what's in this for them. And Robert thought, you know, what value am I providing the reader? And he really, really sort of beat that into my head. And it was super important. Mm, yeah, that's a, a valuable lesson. And I, I, I definitely see, I think, his influence because, I mean, your books are so well-researched. They're so – the arguments um, in your books are so well-formed and they're very impactful for me at least. Um, specifically, your books on philosophy, The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy – like these are timeless principles and this is something that I'm super into and fascinated by these principles that have been around for, for so long that um, keep popping up and, and keep enduring. And I love the way that you kind of extract this, this ancient wisdom and translate it into, into modern terms that's practical for people. So I think you do an excellent job of that. Well, thank you. Um, you've always struck me as a pretty philosophical guy in general, you know, in the sense that you just think very thoughtfully about things. And I really identify with that aspect of your personality. I identify myself as kind of an introvert. And I'm wondering if, if you do too, because people who, are, who tend toward introversion kind of like to play with concepts and theories and philosophies like that. Would you describe yourself as kind of a, an introvert? Yeah, look, I think, I think, uh, you tend to gravitate towards writing because you are better sort of stepping back, thinking about planning what you're, what you're saying. Like I, I tend to, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm less articulate on this podcast, let's say, than I would be in an article, uh, that's attempting to answer the same question. Um, and so I look, I, I think obviously you want to be articulate and be able to communicate in all mediums. But I also feel like it, when you're sitting down and thinking about your career, uh, you want to play, you want to go towards your strengths, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that that's what I was that's what I was I was doing when I I I felt at home writing. That's like this. That's the where I'm comfortable, and that's why I I I went there uh, career wise. And so yeah, there's a little bit of introversion. I mean, but I'm I'm often so passionate about what I'm writing about that I'm willing to do the work, right? Like I'm, I'm willing to get proficient at speaking. I've got a big talk in a couple of days um, because I care that much about what I'm, that, about what I'm saying. But I, I, do, uh, I, I do feel more comfortable writing than just about anything else. Yeah, yeah. And, and just for the people listening, introversion in the sense that not like you're, you're shy or anything like that, but just introverted in the sense that you kind of derive more energy and satisfaction from going into the inner world, into your inner world, rather than from other people or or events or getting that energy from from the out from an outside source. No, no, that that's a, that's that's sort of the test I use when I talk to people about whether they're an introvert or an extrovert. Is when you're around other people, do you find that to be energizing or draining? Personally, I tend to find it draining. And, and so that, that's, that gives me a sense that I'm probably more comfortable by myself, you know, sort of thinking, uh, communicating from some, some level of distance than I am, you know, uh, you know, at a three day conference, uh, with people 
to me, I, I like come home with a cold, right? Like I'm just, I'm just, I'm just exhausted from that experience. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I, and it's, so it's a, kind of an odd endeavor to start a podcast for somebody who, who is, who is kind of on the introversion spectrum. But at the same time, sure. I, I relate to you in the sense that I, I have such a passion for what I do specifically wanting to figure out things like I'm just a curious guy I want to talk with people I want to get to the bottom of certain topics and subjects um that I kind of put that aside and the and that curiosity supersedes my introversion and sure and look but this podcast is also it's 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 you know 1 hour or 30 yeah. minutes yeah. it's under your control you're choosing who you're talking to that's very different than say like I don't know being a tour guide or, you know, being a stand-up comedian or something like totally, that. Right. Yeah. Um, so you, you want, you want to be lined up with, with, you don't want to, you don't want to choose a career path that, that sort of inherently drains you and, and sucks the life out of you t- typically. <laughs> right. If it can be helped. Right. So I know you're a big fan of stoicism. Obviously, you've you've written about about this philosophy in in your books and kind of interwove it throughout some of your books. Is is stoicism is is that the main philosophy that you live by? And if so, why did you choose it over other philosophies? Well, I, for for me, stoicism is is this sort of operating system, this sort of toolkit for living my life. But I, I would say that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm willing to raid any school, any discipline, any religion, any wise person for advice, guidance, insight, right? So Stoicism and ancient philosophy, uh, popularized by Marcus Aurelius, uh, Seneca, Epictetus, Cato, uh, the, the, the sort of famous Greeks and Romans, uh, it is you know, my, cho- let's say, call it my chosen philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I think the, the Epicureans had good insights. I think there's good insights from Aristotle. I think the Christians figured some things out. I think the Muslims and the Buddhists have figured some things out. So I'm willing to take from everywhere. But generally, yes, I find that Stoicism is, is sort of uniquely suited to my personality. I think it's, it's got the, the closest, clearest, most comprehensive guide as uh we call it to the, the good life um and, and it's it's also what i've where i i've found that i can make the most difference as a writer so that's why I, i've done now three books i have this site dailystoic.com which is i think probably the largest community of stoics since the the, the fall of the roman empire and 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 so it's <laughs> it's it's a mix of of both what I personally believe and the platform that I've built as a writer. Um, I, I think there's wonderful things in Buddhism. I'm not writing about Buddhism cause I, I don't, that's not, that's not my, both my cup of tea to excuse the pun and also <laughs> not my, my strengths as a writer. Got it. And so you just kind of, your, your personality lines up with some of the principles of stoicism and you kind of naturally gravitated toward that philosophy, but you seem to have a sort of a toolkit approach in that you do take from other philosophies where it's where it's where you see fit. Um, you think that's a reasonable approach? Because I, I really like that approach too, the the toolkit approach, kind of pulling from other philosophies and and I'm always trying to car- compartmentalize these kind of things. Um, how do you think about that? I mean, is that is that kind of your your approach in general? 
Yeah, I mean that's that. I think that's the that's the ultimate approach. The the Stoics were opposed to dogma. They were opposed to sort of deification, making you know this thing sort of above criticism or 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 improvement. And look, this the the philosophy more or less stopped two thousand years ago, right? Um, it, it's not as if it has been evolving and changing and growing. If it had been, uh, you know, if Marcus Aurelius was alive today, it, it doesn't. It strikes me as very reasonable that he would be familiar with breakthroughs in psychology, breakthroughs in cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, you know, he'd, he'd obviously have, have seen, uh, he, he'd be familiar with history. He'd, you know, Marcus Aurelius believed that, uh, that, that Rome uh, should have an emperor, right? He was the emperor. Um, I would imagine if he was alive today, he would be a Republican, not, not of the Republican Party, but he'd be in favor of a republic or a democracy, right? right. Um, and so these things are, I don't believe they are frozen in time. Uh, and, and so while the philosophy itself can evolve because the people are dead, humanity has made a number of breakthroughs and insights, and I think it's important that we avail ourselves of them. It's fascinating to me that Stoicism, or a lot of the principles in Stoicism, are precursors to like cognitive behavioral therapy, like modern day psychological fields. Sure. And when a in ancient philosophy bears out the truth in modern day, that to me signals that they got something right. Well, I think the reason that that happens is, you know, we tend to think philosophy is, uh, you know, these sort of grand, large, you know, truths. Uh, and, and it is, but also ancient philosophy was designed to be, uh, uh, problem solving, right? Um, Epicurus would say vain is the word of philosophy of the philosopher that does not cure the suffering of man. And so when, when you see the Stoics sort of addressing these problems, whether it's anxiety or fear or, you know, worrying about death or whether it's our temper or any number of these things. And then they all those things also happen to be addressed in cognitive behavioral therapy. It's because they're trying to solve the same fundamental problem and the solution. I mean, there's only so many solutions to these problems, right? Like it's it's not uh, it's not super. There's only like one or two ways to deal with, let's say, anxiety. Mm -hmm. you, you, but basically, you get to the bottom of it. You figure out what you're so anxious about, and you develop habits and and uh, a better logic that makes you not so prone to it. And so that's, to me, what I love about Stoicism is that it's not this like arcane theoretical exercise. It's like designed for what you're actually going through at this moment. That's a good point. What is, because I, I think when people hear philosophy, a lot of times it's, it's, it, it does call to mind arcane <laughs> concepts and, and, um, yeah. you know, heads carved out of stone. But what is philosophy in the colloquial sense and what is philosophy in the academic sense? Is there any difference there? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I prefer – there's a wonderful book by a French philosopher named uh, Pierre Hadot who is big on the Stoics and it's called Philosophy as a Way of Life. And to me, that's, that is the best definition of philosophy, that it is a way of life. It's mm. a way of living. It's a, it's a guide to the good life as I was saying earlier. But more, more importantly – He's talking about philosophy as, as he says, as, as spiritual exercises. So not this thing that you hear once, 
but more a process, a discipline that you do. And so like when you think about Marcus Aurelius, right, what his, his famous book is Meditations. The, the actual translation is to himself. He was writing notes to himself. So he was doing the philosophy. So like journaling and philosophy to me, I think are in some ways kind of indistinguishable, uh, provided you're actually writing about philosophical things. You're not like, you know, today I had a sandwich for lunch <laughs> and then, you know, I slept eight hours. Um, this idea of sort of journaling about these big questions, reminding yourself of what you believe, trying to reflect on and critique and improve your behavior. To me, this is what the philosophical life actually is, um, not, say, sitting in a classroom, you know, talking about whether we live in a computer simulation or not, or, you know, whether free will exists or not. Um, to me, philosophy is much more like, okay, I keep losing my temper. Why is that? What can I do about it? Um, or, uh, you know, how can I prepare for uh, the the sectitudes of fate? You know, to me, that's what philosophy is designed to answer. The the practical problems of real life, essentially. Yes, yes. Not not how can I get more money? How can I get my neighbor to be nicer to me? Not not you know trivial problems, but the fundamental practical difficulties of existence. Yeah, I think that's that's an important point is is not to get caught in the tail chasing that some philosophical conversations could could lead to, but rather the the more practical applications of it. And and I think you do that, you know, expertly in your books. So, I think that's why I and a lot of my audience gravitates toward uh toward your writings. So, I know you like meditations and I think I think uh, Marcus Aurelius is your favorite philosopher if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I I love that book too. In fact, it's the one I'm most familiar with um, out of, you know, the the famous Stoics. I wonder because I get asked this sometimes and I wonder what, what you would say to this. Some would say, you know, why is it desirable to learn from uh, someone like Marcus Aurelius. He was a, a Roman emperor. Some would say maybe he's a just a rich, out-of-touch ruler for his time. What could I possibly have in common with him? So why do you think his perspective is, is valuable and what can we take from that? Well, I think what's so incredible about Marcus Aurelius is that you have this man. He's incredibly powerful. Uh, he, he, he's not born into the, the emperorship. He was chosen for it. Uh, but you have this, you have this man who's given absolute power and, you know, we know the saying absolute power corrupts absolutely. And yet he's sort of the exception to that rule. And we have his journal, like we have the journal that he wrote where he would push himself to be better. He would, uh, we see the exercises, the spiritual exercises he was doing and the, the path to self-improvement that he was on. And I, I find that to be very admirable. Um, I, I would say that if, if it works for the emperor, it probably works for the ordinary, right? And what's, what I love about Marcus Aurelius is that his favorite Stoic is Epictetus, who was a slave. And so again, you have this philosophy that is not solely about learning from the privileged or the powerful, but is in fact battle tested on both extremes of the spectrum, the emperor and a former slave are both finding solace and insight and wisdom and purpose in the same methodology, the same thinking, the same discipline. And it would be hard 
to find much many other philosophical schools that pass that test. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's not a rich person's philosophy, or it's not only a rich person's philosophy, right? It can mm-hmm. be applied across a spectrum of socioeconomic experiences, and it is a versatile philosophy, and it has a lot of practical applications. So um, I want to talk a little bit about, about meta skills, like uh-huh. thinking and learning. R- reading your books, you know, I can't help but conclude that you're very rational and and clear thinker no doubt stoicism has helped you with this i'm sure but i'm wondering what other things have helped you develop or cultivate that that ability to to think clearly um that's a good question i mean look one of the reasons i sought out a career in in business and in marketing and why i continue to have a company to this day aside from the fact that you know the, the company does well and it, it's nice to have the income from it is that i like being out in the world, I like experiencing things. And so watching, say, a company like American Apparel, which was extraordinarily successful and then failed very catastrophically, was a lesson to me, a very hard one, hard watched lesson. Uh, when you watch someone you know and admire take a billion dollar company to zero, it's sort of, there's a lot of lessons there on what you should definitely not do. <laughs> Uh, so, so, uh, you know, having been out and experiencing things and trying my hand in, in different businesses and different industries, you, you learn very quickly the importance of, of sort of rational thought of self-control of managing your perspectives and your perceptions because the stakes are very high and you can very easily go wrong. And, and it's a, it's an ongoing process, right? I mean, it would be, it would be absurdly dishonest to say that, I am rational 100% of the time. I have I have grudges that I hold. I have situations that I get freaked out about. I lose my temper. I get worried. I have anxiety. Uh, you know, I take things personally. You know, the the whole point of stoicism is that it's an ongoing battle. Uh, it is an ongoing process that you're trying to get better from one day to the next. But I I I'm in no I'm I would hardly hold myself up as any sort of sage or really any sort of example for other people. I'm writing about these same things that I struggle with that I'm working on. But my point is, I've learned it both in theory, in the books, I've practiced it in my own life, in my own writing, and then I've gone out and had real-world experiences that taught me the importances of those lessons and shown me the stakes involved as well. It's also it's also about getting practice, right? It's also practice. like. Uh, a stand-up comedian has to go up, right? You have to get a lot of stage time. And I think that's true in life too. Like, let's say it's like, how can you avoid, um, how, how can you practice the skill of say, not losing your temper when somebody attacks you, right? Or some, someone, uh, you know, levels very serious criticism at you. Well, you can read about that and you can go, yeah, I agree, that's very important. But, um, if you're not out in the world doing things, if you're hiding in your basement, you're never going to actually have any practice uh, doing that thing. And then the one time that you are out and it happens, you're not going to perform as well because you've never done it before. And so uh, it's also about practice. How do you deal with, with criticism? What's your philosophy on that? One simple way, and the Stoics talk about this, is is there truth in this criticism? Like, 
are you actually willing to hear the person? Because maybe they're right. Maybe you did do something wrong. Um, maybe you do have some glaring flaw that needs to be resolved. And, and in that case, this person isn't attacking you. They're doing you an incredible service, right? So, so first off, can you listen? I think generally I try to uh, uh, not uh, obsess either way over uh, you know praise or criticism. I try to have my own set of standards that I try to measure myself and my work against. Um, but but I, I do, knowing those standards then, I try to integrate the feedback that I get. So if someone says, you know, you did amazing on this book because of X, and X was something I was very intentionally trying to do, then I can, you know, take that praise uh, and, and appreciate it. If the person is saying, you did a bad job because you didn't do X, and I specifically did not want to do X, and I thought that X was opposite of the purpose of this given article or book or whatever, then why would it? Why would that criticism hurt me? This person is is off base. This person is trying to tell me that I failed because I didn't do something that I wasn't trying to do. And so, so really having a strong inner sense of what you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish allows you to integrate feedback in a in a healthy manner. And in looking at that feedback in a more objective and kind of granular way sounds like it's helpful too. Like not just looking at it from a, oh, somebody gave me criticism and that's it, but really dissecting that criticism and um, figuring out what's true, what isn't, and kind of going through it like that. Yeah, exactly. I like that. Yeah. I, I think that going back to kind of what, what we touched on just before that, uh, you know, thinking about things versus actually living those those things and having those experiences is super powerful. And there's a huge difference. Like, I think a, another good example is, you know, a philosophy of, let's say, positive thinking 100% of the time, that'll get you through everything. Sure. Um, it sounds nice. But then like you actually live life and then you realize it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But then you contrast that with, say, the stoic philosophy of negative visualization and then it's like okay now we have a a practical um, strategy that we can use and and implement into our life in a real way yeah look i'm 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 a very pragmatic person i'm not i'm not looking for universal rules or or dogmas we were talking about i'm looking for just stuff that helps me get a little bit better that helps me be a better person that helps me be a better writer that helps me be a better thinker. That helps me be a better husband, father. You know, all, all all these things. That that's what I'm looking for. And and I want people to understand that that's what philosophy is about. It's it's not this academic thing that's out of their reach. It's not this thing that you pursue on the side when you have a little bit of extra time. It is it is the ultimate self help. It's the it's the important work that we should be doing. Because if you're not gonna if you're not gonna do it, who is? And if you're not gonna do it now, when are you gonna do it? Yeah, and, and I think what a lot of people don't realize is that everybody uses philosophy. Everybody philosophizes in some way. Like if you're deciding what movie to watch, you're probably using some philosophical concepts and you're weighing you're weighing different values, you know? And so uh -huh. it's just about, I think, and you tell me your take on this, but I think it's just about kind of developing a specific philosophy that helps you deal with 
you know, bigger problems, bigger actual real issues, and in a way that is specific for your life. Yeah, what is, you know, you should have a philosophy, right? Pete Carroll, the coach of the Seattle Seahawks, he talked about this. It's like, if you don't have a philosophy that you live your life by, you're just winging it, you know? And do you want to wing it in the most important moments of your life when you get a cancer diagnosis, uh, when, you know, your business goes under, uh, when you achieve extraordinary success, you know, any number of things that are really going to try and test you. Do you want to be winging it or do you want to have a framework that guides you in that difficult moment? And to me, that's what philosophy is really about. Do you have a philosophy that, that you could give in like one or two sentences? I don't know if it's the title of your books, but is it something like that? Yeah, yeah. Look, the obstacle is the way. That is a fundamental philosophical principle of my life that you don't control what happens, but you control how you respond. You know, uh, that ego is not a positive addition to a situation. That ego is the enemy. It's the thing you're keeping out. It's the thing that destroys truth and teamwork and fairness and vulnerability. Those, yeah, those are two big philosophical points in my life. I love that those two books in particular, even if you don't read those books at all, like if you just read the titles of those books, you can actually get a lot from just the title. The Obstacles Away is is actually kind of a directive. You know, Ego is the Enemy. It's a bit of a directive. Just the title itself, you know what the book is about. Obviously, you unpack it in a, in a very nuanced way in, in, in both of the books, but I love that about your books, that even if it's somebody who doesn't want to read anything, look at the title of the book, The Obstacle is the Way. You can use that to guide yourself, and I think that's helpful. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, the idea is I want it to be, I want it to be so simple that you can think about it in the most trying and difficult of moments. So, so another meta skill I wanted to talk with you about is learning. Obviously, you read and research a lot for your books. I find that sometimes if I read or study too much, I can become almost more confused than when I started, like sure. on on a particular topic. What does what does your learning process look like, and how do you process all that information in an effective way rather than drowning in all the details? I think in some ways I, I'm I'm not interested in details. I'm interested in truth. I'm I'm interested in important, applicable exercises. That's really important. And, uh, you know, I take a lot of notes. I, I take notes, I journal, I think about these things. One of the perks of my job as a writer is that uh, I'm, I'm able to integrate and refresh and, and revisit this information, you know, over and over again. And that makes me better. Do you feel like when you, when you read something powerful, so something that really resonates with you, do you feel that that's just going to stick with you forever? Do you kind of have that faith that it's going to stick with you? Or do you take any particular steps to kind of ingrain that in your psyche and attach more cognitive hooks to that idea? Yeah. I mean, uh, every book I read, I take notes as I'm reading. I transfer those notes to note cards afterwards. I organize those note cards. 
I revisit them when I write about the things. I try to reference them. I think about them. I review the note cards. It's a process for me. If you, if you just let it go into a black hole, you will not remember it. You will lose it. And so, yeah, it's very important that you, uh, that, that you, that you keep the information fresh and, and you, most importantly that you use it. Okay. So I want to parse that just a little bit here. So that was really helpful, I think. And I want to break that up a little bit. So this process you described, is that just for when you're writing a book? Every book I read, any book I read, if I'm not taking notes, I shouldn't be reading it. That's my rule. Got it. Okay. So so the, the first thing is you start with, with books. You only read books that you're actually interested in. Yes. And then, so when you're reading a book, do you do you pause at certain times and then take notes or how does that look like? No, I'm, I'm, I'm doing marginalia. I'm writing in the book as I'm, as I'm reading it, jotting things down that occur to me that I like, that I want to revisit that are worth, you know, remembering like that. I've uh, heard that from a psychologist, a clinical psychologist recently that highlighting isn't really, isn't really a good practice because it doesn't really train your brain to do anything. Um, but note taking is, and that's what you're describing. Do you highlight and note take, or if you see an idea, well, I, do- I, I I would very much disagree with that psychologist. Uh, the the point of highlighting is that you then go back to it and use that information references. Highlighting is like putting a sticker on it or saving it to Evernote or whatever. It's the first step in a process. So of course, yeah, highlighting it doesn't magically put it in your memory. But if you don't mark it down, if you don't specifically call it out, you won't be able to go back to it at a later time. Got it. Okay, so so you take notes in in, in the margins of the book, and then at some point you transfer those. The, the next step is you transfer those notes to a note card. Uh huh. Is is this after you finish the book, or is this kind of while you're reading? No, this is a couple weeks after I finish the book. I I, I let it marinate, and then I go back to it. So kind of like that spaced repetition. Mm-hmm. And you do you essentially transcribe the the notes that you took in the book onto note cards or do you embellish on them? How does that look? It all depends. Sometimes it's a quote that I'm writing down verbatim. Sometimes it's a thought about the quote. Sometimes it's a story. You know, it, it, it all depends. But I, I'm I'm interacting with the material. Sometimes it's a whole page that I'm copying. But the, the, it's the process of writing it down using the pen or the pencil that is sort of searing it into my memory. And then do you ever revisit those note cards at a later date? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, every one of my books is is 100% based on note cards that I accumulated while writing. I love it. So so really just just snuggling up with, with all the, the content in any way you can. Yep. Note-taking – and then um, revisiting it, transferring it, transcribing it, giving your own thoughts. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really helpful. Is there anything else that you want to add to that? No, no, that's my process. I, if you Google my name and the, the the phrase note card system, you can see like photos. I've written about it a, a couple times, but you can see like exactly how I do it. It's beautiful. Um, do you ever deal with overthinking? And 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 if so, how do you combat that? Yeah, of course. I mean, anxiety is overthinking. Uh, fear is typically overthinking or I guess sometimes underthinking. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think a- any person who uses their brain 
typically also suffers from its overuse. And so I, I'm no exception to that. I, you know, sometimes the remedy is more of the same, right? Okay, why am I thinking this? Let me sort of, you know, explore that. Let me get to the bottom of it. Let me explain it away. And then other times it's maybe I'm just thinking too much period and I need to just exist in the present moment. I need to empty my mind. I need to clear things out. So it all, it all depends on the situation, but, uh, I, I wouldn't, I would never claim that I'm not, not, uh, not guilty of, of, of overthinking from time to time. So, I mean, I write too. And, and, and I think that I get into these kind of periods where I am a little bit more just in my inner world. And I'm not talking to anybody. I, I, I feel a little bit even, uh, <laughs> antisocial to an extent where I'm, I'm not making conversation and I'm more, you know, having that, that inner conversation. Are there any strategies that you, that you use often that kind of get you out of that or like, and, and that sometimes is, is a helpful state to be in. I, I recognize that, especially if you are writing, but let's say if you want to get out of that, are there any strategies that you use? Yeah, I mean, exercise is a big one for me. Uh, it's hard to think about anything when you're, you know, out of breath, uh, you're lifting heavy weights, uh, or you're sparring with someone or, you know, whatever, or you're swimming, any kind of exercise, I tend to find it clears the mind, you know, just going out and doing things. I mean, the, the more you can exist in that present moment, you can think nothing at all is, is often, I think, the, the remedy to that problem. Yeah, getting your physical body involved as opposed to just continuing to to ruminate. Correct. That makes sense. What do you think your superpower is? I don't think I have a superpower. I think I'm 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 pretty good at at writing, at researching, at coming up with unique angles or ways of thinking about things. And then I think I I work hard, and I think it's a combination of all those things. I don't think I'm like world class at any of them. But I think I've got a, a good balance of all those traits and they, they add up to something that allows me to do this at the professional level. Mm, I like that. So it's kind of the the combination of all these different skill sets that you employ. Yeah. I often talk about the 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 idea that the person that you'll be in five years depends largely on the books you read, you know, the movies you watch, the music you listen to, all that stuff. Sure. The people you have spent time with um, today, right? So whatever you're doing today, that that's kind of going to shape who you are in, let's say, five years. That's an arbitrary number, but the I, I think the concept is directionally true. Um, what are let's say two or three or however many you want books that have have kind of shaped who you are and, and another way to put this is kind of like if you were to write like a guide to understanding Ryan Holiday what books would be required reading to understand who you are and, and where you come from your mindset things like that yeah I'd, I'd, I'd encourage people to read uh, Robert Greene's The 48 Laws of Power Mastery um, I like uh, a novel called What Makes Sammy Run by Bud Schulberg. I like uh, a biography of William Tecumseh Sherman by B.H. Liddell Hart. Um, I like The Great Gatsby. It's one of my favorite novels. Uh, I like Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. Um, I loved uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Um, you know, and then and then all the Stoics. I mean, I think the Stoics sort of get to the bottom of of, of who I am. And, uh, I don't think the journey for me is by any means done. Like I, I think I'm still figuring out who I am. So 
you know, if you asked me that question today, I'd give you one answer. If you asked me in a year, I'd probably give you a slightly different answer. So it's a, it's a process for me, but, um, I think you, I think whether you're trying to figure me out or not, I think, and everyone would benefit from reading those books. When you read, do you read, um, every word, do you do any kind of like speed reading tactics or are you kind of a slow reader? I'm a very slow reader and I just want to know your strategy on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm just a diligent, hard, hardworking reader. I don't think I skim. I don't think I read super fast, but I, I try to do it a lot and I did it a lot early on, right? I, I have slightly less time now, but, uh, you know, it was for most of my twenties, I was in a book, you know, that, that I would say, um, so I think when if you're looking for a shortcut, you're thinking about it wrong. Um, going back to these things that, that shape you. So I, I think those are awesome book recommendations and, and I appreciate that. What about maybe two or three movies or films or documentaries that have that have shaped you? Uh, I like uh, Gladiator. Obviously, I think it's a great, great movie. It's there's a stoicism element to it. I like uh, I like. Uh, uh, Tombstones, one of my favorite movies. I like the documentary, The Fog of War. I think it's pretty fantastic. Um, that was really influential when I saw it the first time. Um, I like all Ken Burns' stuff, you know, his one on national parks. I'm just finishing his one on Vietnam, his one about the Civil War, about World War II. Even his one about the Brooklyn Bridge is great. So uh, I, I'm a big fan of documentary. If you're not a big reader, watch lots of documentaries. You get a lot of the benefits there. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I think if you're watching good TV or, or good documentaries, I, I think it's I wouldn't feel guilty about that. You know, some people think reading is the only way you can learn. I'm not sure that's true. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I've thought about that a little bit. Well, a lot actually. I'm just wondering what your take on it is. Why is reading held as kind of the most, the, like the highest form of, of learning? Because I can read a book and it'll take me, I mean, it takes me like, I don't know, 20 hours to, to read a book. I, to read an entire book front to back. I don't know how long it takes, but maybe somewhere in that ballpark. But then I can listen to an audio book and, you know, in maybe half the time, maybe less than that. And I can do, be doing other things. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good audio learner. Do you think there's any decreased value in, let's say, listening to a book or, or watching a documentary versus reading a book? Is there any way we process that differently? I, I would say I would say there's an element of snobbery involved, right? People think that, uh, you know, books are the only way you can learn. And that's because that they learn from books or people think that, you know, like if you can learn from audiobooks and that that's the only way you can fit it in go for it, right? I, I don't like audiobooks that much. Uh, I, I've, I've read all my audiobooks. I think uh, I, I'm glad people like them, but it's not for me. So I, I just hate this idea of one size fits all. Like what, what I'm interested in is that people are interested in learning. And, and I'm not really, maybe I was when I was younger, I was more dogmatic about these things. But now I just like whatever works for you, man, that's what you should do. And, and I, I'm not, I'm not that uh, into making people feel guilty or inferior for not doing it my way. Yeah. Very cool, man. Well, Ryan, it, it has been a pleasure talking with you and uh, I, I appreciate your time and I, I hope we can connect again in the future. Of course. Look, you've been a, a very great supporter of my work and I, I really appreciate it. And I think you're you're doing a service too, right? Like, you know, to go to this point about books, like, okay, reading books is great, but maybe you're a slow reader, but then you're following 
an account like yours on Instagram and you're getting inspiration or you're getting one great quote that makes you think about something differently, like you, you should be looking for wisdom everywhere, even if it's on Instagram or it's on YouTube or it's in podcasts. Don't be a picky eater, right? Like get it wherever you can get it. Uh, <laughs> and and that, that's been my attitude. So I, I appreciate the support and thanks for having me on. Of course, man. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. We'll talk soon. All right. Hey, thanks for listening to the Think Grow podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and find value in this podcast, I humbly ask you to please subscribe and or leave me a review on iTunes. Or you can just share it with a friend who you think might find value in it. If you've already done any of these, I want to take a moment to sincerely thank you. I truly, truly appreciate your support. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for future guests or topics you'd like to hear covered, you can email podcast at thinkgrowprosper.org.